Hi everyone, welcome to Faith Community Church. We're so glad that you could join us for this week's podcast. If you have any questions or want to learn more about our church, you can check us out at woodstockfcc.com. That's woodstockfccfaithcommunitychurch.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy this week's podcast. I've said it before and I'll stick to it. It's, it's a good thing to have when you have so many kids in the service that it begins to feel a little empty when they've gone. That is an exciting thing to happen at the church. And so I'm so glad that not only do we have the kids, but we have a place to take them and offer them a, a way, not because they're not wanted in service, but offer them a place where they can hear about Jesus' love for them in a way that's going to be most effective for them to learn. So we're so excited by that. We talked about this last week, uh, but... Today now is going to be our last Sunday in this Abide series as we're looking at John 15. And over the last eight weeks now, this is week nine, we've covered quite a lot. And you might have noticed a few themes. Uh, I'll I'll help remind you quickly here. We won't spend long here because we have quite a bit to get to today. But there's been a few themes that have come up over and over again. Uh, So we began way back at the beginning, nine weeks ago now, looking at the why. And I think it's important to start with why. Why does this matter? And Jesus tells us in John 15, 11, he, he tells us the why is so that we can experience his joy. We need to abide in him so we can experience the joy of Jesus. We looked at uh, what Viticulture 101 is, which you guys are all Viticulture experts by now. I trust Viticulture 101 says source determines substance, or we can understand it, what I am connected to as the source that's feeding into my life is going to produce, it's going to dictate what kind of fruit I produce. That's source determines substance. We've looked at the care of the gardener. Jesus talks about God being the gardener and caring for us. And part of his care we looked at was pruning, which we don't always like. But it says God will prune away everything in our life, even good things, things that we think are good. He will prune it away if it's going to hinder the growth of Christ-like fruit. We've talked about how God's not indifferent to fruitlessness. We think we can just go on not bearing fruit because we haven't seen any at least major evidence of God being uh, uh, not happy with that. But actually John 15 tells us we are to produce fruit. We're going to talk about that more today. But God is not indifferent towards fruitlessness. Rather, we've talked about how he is patient with us, not wanting anyone to suffer. We talked about uh, just last week how we can bring glory to God and point others to him. How? By producing fruit. So we've looked at a lot over the last eight weeks now. In week nine, we're going to finish. And, and outside of the major theme, of course, of abiding in Jesus, which is there in abundance, Uh, there's another theme that I think has come up in just about every single sermon that's worth remembering now, which is this. We are called to be more than faithful. We are called to be more than faithful. We must be fruitful. And again, before you get the wrong idea, let me remind you, it's good to be faithful. In fact, you cannot bear fruit unless you are first faithful. But you can be, and this is the danger, you can be faithful without being fruitful, and that's where the problem is. There are many who profess to be connected to the vine, connected to Jesus, yet they have lives that produce no fruit. And yet, we find many of these people are content. They've become completely complacent in doing what is the bare minimum, 
and they think to themselves, I've met the requirements, I'm good, but we see in Scripture, we're going to unpack this a little more today, fruitful people go beyond the bare minimums, that go beyond the letter of the law, and they ask, how can I use all that God has given me, my talents, my time, my resources to love others, which of course, as we talked about last week, that is the fruit that we are to bear uh, to love others, to show others the love that Jesus shows me. And that's essentially what we talked about all last week. We looked at the question, what does it actually mean practically to be fruitful? And the answer at its most basic level is it means loving others. And that's exactly what Jesus says. And so I want to make sure you understand, as we bring the series to a close this morning, that the call is clear. We have to be more than faithful. The call is to bear fruit. We can all make that mistake of allowing being faithful to be the ceiling of our spiritual life. That's the highest level of what we're willing to do. But the reality is, faithfulness is meant to be the floor. It's where we begin, and the call is to grow from there. The call is to bear fruit from there, to move on up as we become increasingly fruitful. Jesus doesn't tell us to bear fruit. He says bear much fruit. That's what's going to bring glory to God when we bear much fruit. So the, 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 the faithfulness is not the ceiling, but the floor from which we stand on is where we begin. The call is to become increasingly more fruitful as we listen and do, not just listen, listen and do what Jesus says, which is to love others. Faithfulness is not the ceiling. It's the floor from which we stand on and grow from. And you're going to see just how important that is once we explore John 15 again today. But first, let me just pray. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you again that we can come, that we can gather, that we can read your word. We just pray now, would you speak to us clearly from your word? Would you reveal yourself today? Would you make us aware of your presence, which is here and all around? More than anything else, we pray your will would be done, that each person listening is going to hear a message from you, and they will know without a doubt that you are speaking to them specifically today. Would you encourage us all on this journey of becoming fruitful? Would you prune away the things that we are attached to that are holding us back? Thank you for loving us. Help us to love others as you have loved each one of us. So we give you this service, Lord. We hold all of it with open hands and pray that you'll do with it what you will. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm doing a little better, but I'm still feeling that itch in my throat now that I'm talking a lot. All of a sudden, it sneaks back. So, I have no lemon, ginger, honey tea this morning, just water, and we'll see how we do. I'm going to take a cough break now, though. <coughs> so, last week, I already said this, we talked about this really cool thing where how you and I, we collectively can bring glory to God, and that's amazing to me, and Jesus makes it clear how we do it. It says this in John 15, 8, Jesus says, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit and show yourselves to be my disciples. See, bearing fruit, and I love it. He says, not just bearing fruit, bearing much fruit, fruit in abundance. He says, bearing fruit brings glory to God, and it's the mark, or you could say the proof in the pudding, that you are abiding in Christ, that you are his disciple. Well, what does that fruit look like? Again, go back and listen to last week if you missed it, because we talked about an abundance, and, and mostly I've been summarizing it with three things and saying, was part of the Viticulture 101, the fruit we are to bear is to have a Christ-like attitude, a Christ-like character, and a Christ-like mission in the world. But last week, we tried to take those three things and make it even more simple while still 
being true to what those things mean and represent in practical ways. And we ended up with saying this. The answer is love. What is fruit that is, what does Christ-like fruit look like in our lives practically? And the answer is love. Jesus says we are to love others as he has loved us. And you're going to see this again. We're going to look at it right here. Jesus gives us this exact answer in John 15, 12. He begins, my command is this, love each other. Listen, it doesn't get more simple than that. My command is this. This is not wish-washy words. It's not if you feel like it, if you're in the mood, if it's appropriate, if it's easy, my command, he says, is this, love each other. And maybe as you hear this, you immediately want to say, I, I do. I'm being faithful in this, Jesus. Don't worry. I love others. But Jesus, I love this. He does not leave it vague because what you call love and what someone else might call love and what Jesus might call love might look radically different. So no, Jesus goes on to tell us exactly how we are to love others. He doesn't leave the defining of who we should love or how we should love them to us. And so he says, he says, my command is this, love each other. And he finishes here, ready? As I have loved you. Love each other, how? In the same way that Jesus has loved you. How did Jesus love you? Well, he tells you right in the next verse. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's own life for one's friends. That's how Jesus loved you. He considered you his friend, and he suffered greatly for your sake to the point of death. He took your place, and he tells us here, this is what fruit-bearing looks like. Love each other to this point. Because there's a difference between saying, I love others, and saying, I love others to the point that I'm prepared to die for them. So today, I'm going to talk about practical, very practical fruit bearing. That is showing love to others, the same love that Jesus has shown you. And I'm going to do it by talking about front porches. You with me? If you're not with me, just stick with me, and I hope to make that clear in just a few minutes here. But I promise it does hold relevance. Now, you've likely noticed, I can't be the only one who have seen this, that over the last few years, maybe we could say even decades, we've become increasingly isolated. Anyone else notice that? We are becoming an increasingly isolated society. Of course, the pandemic and COVID, none of that helped anything, right? Uh, it's played its part here. But just think about how much has changed, not just in the last year, maybe the last three years or five years. I'm talking even before COVID. Think about how things were already changing uh, with, with technology now. That's helped a lot in this. You can do things like order food on your phone. You don't have to talk to a single soul. It gets dropped off at your door. They don't even knock. They don't even say anything to you. They just drop it off at your door, and you get a message on your phone. Your food's here. You go out, pick it up. You don't have to talk to a single person. You can order your groceries online, or you can order your, 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 your items online. Anyone Christmas shopping online? We all do this, right? I'm not the only one. And so we've become increasingly isolated, and you, you don't even have to talk to a single person anymore. You just order it on your phone, on your computer. It gets dropped off at your door. Uh, I, I appreciate the grocery one. I use this all the time. I order my groceries online. I use the one where you go pick it up at the store. You order online or on your phone. You drive to the store. You say, I'm here. They open your trunk, they put the food in the bags, and you drive home. It is great. I'm not mad at technology for this. I appreciate that. It's much easier than trucking my kids inside with me through the store. It makes life a lot simpler. I use it all the time. But uh, the point is, you can see this trend 
towards isolation. In fact, you can even see it in the church. Many have chosen to simply watch church online on their computer or on their TV instead of joining a community in person. And, and really, again, the point I'm just trying to drive home is we become increasingly more isolated from others. Anyone else notice that? Someone say yes, make me feel good. I'm not the only one seeing this trend. People stay in their houses more and they do life from their computer. And here is the inconvenient truth. We don't say this out loud because uh, it's not nice to say it out loud. Maybe some are just unaware of it, I don't know, but I think this is true. And this quote comes from my very wise mother-in-law. I know my father-in-law is gonna watch this service. He'll probably tell her I'm saying this, so uh, I'm grateful for her. And she said this, people isolate themselves from others because they wanna be insulated from people. I think she's right on there. She said, people isolate themselves from others because they want to be insulated from people. So there's this growing trend. It's been happening for a long period of time in Western culture, where more and more people seem to want to isolate from others. And we want to isolate so that we can be insulated from others. I think mostly so that we can be insulated from the work involved in connecting with others. It takes work. It does. It's just a reality. It's a part of life. It's a part of making a connection. It takes work and effort and often sacrifice, sometimes headaches. It takes work to connect with others. And so what do we do? We isolate ourselves in various ways. Why? So that we are insulated from the work that is required from connecting with others. And of course, right now, it's very fashionable to blame this isolation on COVID. But the truth be told, this issue has started long before COVID. And maybe, yes, the pandemic has accelerated some of this isolation or at least highlighted it. But the problem of isolation is not new. I can prove that isolation and this desire for it is not new with one question. How many of you have a deck on the back of your house or a seating area in the back? Okay. Now let me ask you this one. How many of you have a front porch at your house big enough to sit with multiple people? Okay, so almost nobody. Walk around your neighborhood, I guarantee you, you'll find that there's almost no front porches that are big enough to sit with a couple of people and enjoy a conversation. You'll find very, very few houses these days have a front porch. And the point here is that we can actually see this shift uh, to isolation, not just in silly things, like I was saying, like shopping, not even just in things like uh, picking up the phone. We used to be excited to pick up the phone back in the 90s but now we have caller ID and we like to screen those phone calls. If I don't know the name of that person who's calling, I'm not picking up. They can leave a message if it's important. That's what I say. Does anyone else say that? If it's important, they'll leave a message. I'll call them right back. What about knocking on the door? I remember as a kid, you'd be excited when someone knocked on the door. Who could it be? There's suspense. There's surprise. You ran to the door. Now what do we do? We peek through the blinds. Do I want to open this door for this guy? What's this person doing? So we can see this, uh, this shift in isolation, not just in silly things like phones, or the door, or in our shopping trends, but we can actually see it in a literal way through the architecture of how houses are designed. We've seen a shift in the architecture of houses over the last few decades. It used to be people had large front porches. It used to be that people had large front porches. Why? Because that's where they sat to engage their neighbors and the community around them. The front porch was a place to sit and actually connect with your neighbors. It was a place to invite others to come have a conversation. It was an unrushed place where time moved a little slower as you had meaningful relationships and connections. But now our homes, we have a stoop on the front, right? 
We don't have the big front porch with chairs on it where we can sit and invite others. We have a little stoop that's often barely big enough to get the Amazon package to sit there nicely until we get home and hopefully no one sees it and takes it. We have a garage. Often you can open it right from your car. You drive in, what do you do? You close the garage behind you. Do you have to go back inside? No, we have a door from inside the garage into the house. We don't even have to go outside where there's a possibility of seeing someone else. And when we do want to be outside, where do we do it? We go to the backyard where we have our nice deck or maybe that nice seating area surrounded by what? Usually a nice large privacy fence so no one else can see in what we're doing. And yes, you can engage people in your backyard, but here's the good part. You only have to engage with the ones that you really want to because you invited them there anyways. There's been a shift. It's not new. It didn't start with COVID. This has happened over the last couple decades. There's been a shift. Why did this happen? Why did we get front porch and back deck surrounded by a privacy fence? I think it's largely because we wanted to be isolated from people so we can be insulated from people. Now here's the problem. Isolating ourselves from others isn't good. There, 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 there's this ongoing study. Actually, I referenced it a few years ago in a sermon series we did um, on happiness. But it's the longest study that we know of that's ongoing still. It's considered one of the world's longest studies of adult life. It began in 1938, still ongoing. They're still doing research from this one study. And now over the last 84 years, this study's been going on. They, they have tracked uh, the lives of, now it's up to over 700 people. And they follow up with them each year asking basic questions about their work, their home lives, their health. And they've come to some really interesting results from this. A man named Robert Waldinger, he's a psychiatrist and a professor at Harvard, at Harvard Medical School, and he was the one heading up the study a few years ago. This, of course, had a few different heads over the last 84 years. And he was sharing some of what they've learned over the last, I think, there's 75 years at the point that he was sharing this. Now they're up to 84. Some of the, what they've learned from this amazing piece of research they're doing. And so this is what he said. Waldinger said, the first lesson you can take is that social connections are really good for us and that loneliness kills. When he looked at the research they've done over 70 plus years, this is the thing he says. This is the first thing we notice from the results of our research. The very first thing, the thing that is most obvious from everything we've talked about and looked at and, and interviewed these people, social connections are really good for us and loneliness kills. And he goes on to say, it turns out that people who are more socially connected to family or friends or community are happier, they're healthier, and they live longer than people who are less connected. People who are connected to others are happier, healthier, and they live longer than those who are less connected. And this isn't the only unique study to see this phenomenon. There's other studies. There's a man named Robert Putman. He's a, a political scientist. He he's became really famous for a book he wrote called um, Bowling Alone. Uh, and in his book, Bowling Alone, he looked at this trend uh, of becoming increasingly isolated, like we're talking about today. And so he, he talks about in his book how many traditional civic organizations, uh, and of course, he's using bowling leagues as his example, so he's saying how many of these traditional or civic organizations, such as the bowling leagues, they have undergone massive declines over the last few decades. While at the same time, this is important, bowling leagues, massive decrease or massive decline over the last few decades, while at the same time, the number of people bowling has actually increased, showing that it's not that people aren't bowling or joining other civic organizations, 
it's that they want to do it in some form of isolation. They don't want to be a part of something. They want to do it on their terms and on their own in some degree. They want to do it apart from community. And here's what the research bears out. He shares this in his book. He says, if you belong to no groups but decide to join one, you cut your risk of dying over the next year. Are you understanding that isolation is actually physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually not good for you? Uh, pastor Andy Stanley is a pastor in the States. He writes this about the front porch. He says, the front porch existed as a zone between the public and the private, an area that could be shared between the sanctity of the home and the community outside. It's that in-between zone where people can meet. The problem is we've physically taken that zone away from our homes, which is bad enough, but we've also emotionally and spiritually removed the zone from our lives. See, we want less interaction with the community. We don't want the work and often the headaches that come with engaging the world around us. We have decided, though we would never say this because we're too uh, correct to say it, we have decided that we will take care of ourselves and others can do the same. We have isolated ourselves from others. Why? So we can be insulated from people. Here's the problem. That's not what Jesus did. And that's not the lifestyle of a disciple of Jesus either. Because one connected to the vine, that's one who is abiding in Christ, will bear Christ-like fruit. Viticulture 101, source determines substance. If you are connected to Christ, you are to bear Christ-like fruit. That means having a life characterized by love for others. And you can't do that in isolation. And if this is all sounding really hard, then you're probably getting it. If it's not sounding hard, you are probably trying to lie to yourself a little to make it easier because it is hard. In fact, it's so hard that we do just that. We lie to ourselves. We try to find logical loopholes to get us out of this responsibility of loving others in the same way that we use logic. We try to categorize who we have to love, how we have to love them. And you know what? We're not the first people to do that. There's a really famous parable that Jesus told you might remember it. It's called the Good Samaritan. And in this parable, Jesus tells a story as a, a response. It didn't come up out of nowhere, but it's a response to a question that a person was asking. And this person, he, he clearly was a very faithful person. It says he was an expert in the law, but likely we see he wasn't very fruitful in his life. And so this expert of the law, someone who knew to, what to do and how to do it inside out, he asked Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus pushes the question back on him, and Jesus is good at that. He says, you're the expert of the law. What does the law say that you have to do to inherit eternal life? And the, the expert, he answers really well. He says, the law says, love God with all you are and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus affirms him. And he says, that's a great job. That's the correct book answer. And he says, now go and do it. And this expert, though, not satisfied there, either with his own answer or with Jesus' response to his answer. So it says this. This is important. It says, he wanted to justify himself. Don't skip over that part. He wanted to justify himself. What did he want to justify? He wanted to justify his interpretation of the law. He wanted to justify how he had been living, because clearly the way he is living does not fit neatly inside of Jesus' large command to love God with all you are and love all people. And so he says he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, okay, so the law says I have to love my neighbor. Who 
is my neighbor. And I want to read Jesus' response. I ha- I'm going to read it from Luke 10. We're going to read verse 30 to 37. So this expert of the law says, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. It's a powerful story. That's a powerful story, and there's a lot we could spend time here, uh, but I only want to point out two things from this story, two crucial principles we need to learn. And the first one is this. If you want to help others, you have to get off your donkey. See, the Samaritan had to get off his donkey to help the person in need. And the concept here, well, maybe a little tongue-in-cheek, it's simple and profound. If the Samaritan was going to make any real difference in the wounded man's life, he had to first get off his donkey. He had to be inconvenienced. He had to personally engage with the person. He had to become a front-porch Christian, not a back-deck religious person. And this is a really powerful message for us today. Because it's much easier and way more convenient to live an isolated life, to pass right on by, to stay on our donkey, to be content, to look the other way. But we are called to bear Christ-like fruit, which means we are called to love. And we're called to love others in the same way that Jesus loved us, which means it's going to cost something, it's going to require something. And in case this isn't clear, let me make sure you hear the words of Jesus as he made it clear to the expert. He says, who was the neighbor to this man? The religious leader, that temple servant, these people were faithful people. They were faithful in their duties, but they weren't fruitful in their love. No, the expert of the law is left with only one answer. The neighbor is the one who loved. And here's the second principle I want you to take from this story. After the expert comes to the only possible conclusion, Jesus gives some of the most clear and unmistakable instructions that we have in Scripture. He says this, Go and do likewise. He does not say, Go and consider this story. He doesn't say, Go and get in groups and discuss with others what this might mean. No, he says, Go Go, get off your donkey and go and do. Let others squabble about things that have no eternal value. You, if you are my disciples, you who are connected to me, go and bear fruit. Go and love others. Be a front porch Christian. Engage the world around you. Let them know and experience practically that they are not alone in this dark world. Let them know that there are not only people who care, but a heavenly Father who sees, who hears, and who loves them. As you bear fruit, they will be drawn to God. That was last week, right? As we bring glory to God. Remember Matthew 5, 16. 
It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. As you bear fruit, if you do it as you are connected to Christ and you're bearing Christ-like fruit, a Christ-like attitude, character, and mission in the world, or you're bearing the fruit of loving others, they're going to be drawn to God through that, and God will be glorified through that. I'm going to finish our time this morning by giving some pretty strong statements, I think. I'm going to be painting some big pictures that, yes, truthfully simplify a lot of this, but at the same time, I think it can cut through a lot of our excuses. It can cut through a lot of the garbage that we put through this. It cuts through our internal trying to reason away some of this and the little lies we create to make ourselves feel a little better. And I'm telling you this ahead of time so that when I say these things, you don't immediately brush them off. Instead, I'm hoping that you can take what you hear and bring it to God and ask him for some perspective on who to love and how to love. And I'll start with this one. When you become a Christian, that is when you abide in Jesus and he abides in you, in that very moment, you relinquish your right to choose who to love. When you become a Christian, you relinquish your right to choose who to love. Instead, we're told, John 15, 12, we looked at this, you are to love others, you are to love everyone. How? In the same way that Jesus loves you. Uh, one of my favorite authors, this is free of charge, it's not in my notes, okay? This is free, you're not paying me for this. One of my favorite authors and just general favorite people his name is Bob Goff, and if you haven't read a book by Bob Goff, you need to go and buy a book and read it by Bob Goff, okay? He has two really famous books where he just shares about adventures from his life, and this is a man that has fruit-filled adventures and a fruit-filled life, and his first book is called Love Does. And I love that because love is not passive. It's something that you do, and he shares adventures of how he's been loved and how he's loved others. You'll be inspired by it. The second book, though, is called this, Everybody Always. And it's answering that question. Who's my neighbor? Who do I have to show love to? And he tells us, Jesus says, everybody, always. Maybe you are already signed up for our newsletter, but if you're not, you should. And last week, when I sent that newsletter, I quoted Matthew uh, chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. I'm going to read it for you this morning again. This is all going to sound familiar from that newsletter. Matthew 5, 43-48, Jesus is doing the Sermon on the Mount, excuse me. And he says this, you have heard that it was said. I love that. He is challenging the accepted way that life is done. He's saying, you've heard, this is how you've been living, right? So he's, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, something different's happening here. He says, but I'm telling you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He, God, causes the sun to rise evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? And this is significant. And in the newsletter, I said this. The challenge is this. It's easy to love those who are easy to love, which is a really simple statement with really significant uh, meanings. It carries an important truth. It is easy to love those who are easy to love. Loving those who are easy to love is not evidence of a fruit-filled life. At best, it's you being faithful. 
The far better test, then, is your attitude and your actions towards those who are difficult to love, those who have caused you pain, those who have mistreated you, those who are so different from you that you can't even find one piece of common ground to stand on. The better test is this. Do I love people like that? Let me finish with one more thought that's going to perspective, I hope. How many of you guys have kids out there? Grandkids, niece, nephew, mom, dad, family members, somebody that you love beyond comprehension. You just love them beyond comprehension. It doesn't make sense. You would do anything with them. You would die for them, as Jesus talks about in our passage today. You cherish them deeply. I want to take a minute right now. Take a minute. Close your eyes. Think about that person or those people. Get their picture in your mind. And then I want you to answer this question. If that person or those people, if they were alone somewhere, they were in trouble, they were hurt, they were crying, they were distraught, they were scared, they were far from home and in need of help, who would you hope would be the one to come upon them in their moment of need? The religious priest who crossed to the other side, the the temple assistant who looked at them lying there before moving on, or the Samaritan, the one who had compassion, the one who got off his donkey, and engaged and helped them. Think of your loved ones. Who would you hope be the one that came across them? Listen, I, I know your answer. And so I want you to hear the words of Jesus as you think about this. Go and do likewise. Let me pray. Gracious Father, we thank you once again that we can come, that we can gather, that we can be here in your house more than just a time of nice social connections, which is important as we talked about today. More than just a time to sing some songs that are fun or to have the children go downstairs and laugh, and we hope all those things happen. Lord, we've come here to worship you. The songs are not about sounding nice. It's about glorifying you through them. We have come to praise you. We have come to be in your midst. We have come to hear from you as you speak to us through your word. So we pray, Lord, that you have spoken to us already and we pray even more as we move into a moment of quiet time that you will continue to speak to us that we will know and experience your presence and your love and that we will hear your command so clearly to not hoard that love but to go and do likewise to love others in the same way that you loved us and so i do pray then I pray that you'll quiet everything that's not of you in this moment, Lord, that as we take these just two, two simple minutes to hear from you, that you would speak so clearly to each one, that we will leave knowing that we're loved and challenged to love others. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're going to do just that. Uh, if you're familiar with what we do at our church, we call it Take Two at the end of every service. is where we give you two minutes to ask God two questions. And this is maybe in part a bit of a reflection, but more than that, we believe God speaks and what he has to say is worth hearing. So we want to make sure you have an opportunity before you leave this, before you head out into the new week, that you've slowed down before we, we, we get out of here and taken our time to listen for God to speak in your life. So we ask you to ask God these two questions. The first is, what is one thing you're saying to me? God, what is one thing? If you want me to leave here knowing one thing, what are you saying to me? You ask and then you listen for God's response. And it's always so important to move to the second question, which says, okay, God, now that you've spoken to me, now that I've heard from you, what do you want me to do about it? 
How are you asking me to put what you're saying into practical application this week? Uh, what steps of obedience are you asking me to take? So we're going to give you two minutes to ask God these two questions, and then I'll come back and I'll close our service this morning. So we'll start that timer for you right about now. Well, thank you so much for joining us for church this week. We're going to benedict in the same way we've been doing for about two months now. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and I'm going to get my actions correct this week. And I pray that you make this your prayer as we head out to the week ahead. And so we begin by placing a hand over our heart. And we're going to pray this together. We say, Father God, fill us with your love. Help us to love you and everything you've made. We point to our eyes. We're going to pray this. Lord Jesus, help us to see you and to see others the way that you see them too. And finally, we point to our ears and we pray, Holy Spirit, help us to hear you and give us the courage to do what you say. Thanks for joining us this morning. You're dismissed. Parents, don't forget your kids are downstairs. You have to sign them out to get them. Thank you.